So if I could get just that first picture up. How many of you know what this picture is? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you have seen the Netflix show called The Crown? Now, the reason why I watch shows like this is because my mother had four of us boys. I'm the youngest. She didn't have a daughter. She grew up in a family with four brothers, and she married my dad, who has three brothers and no sisters. So I grew up on Little House on the Prairie, um, Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, all of those really great shows. So I'm like able to connect on an emotional level because of my mother to shows like this. But if you haven't seen this show, this is essentially the life of Queen Elizabeth II, uh, really highlighting her and her struggles. The person right next to her played as Winston Churchill. In episode nine, or in, in uh, season one, episode nine, there is this scenario where Churchill, who is typically portrayed as stubborn, fierce, lacking personal insight, kind of a bowl in a, China, in a China room, he is sitting down for a portrait in which he is going to have this man named uh, Sutherland come in and paint his portrait for his 80th birthday. Now, Churchill paints avidly, okay, and he typically paints um, outside of his house, but he's distrusting of this guy because he's a modernist, um, he uh, doesn't like portraits, and this is where we're going to pick up on the scene here where they're having this dialogue about painting portraits or painting landscapes, and this is the dialogue. Landscapes have that great advantage as a subject nature, and uh, as a subject nature is innocent and doesn't express opinions. I save all my kindness for landscapes and all my cruelty for portraits. Self-portraits too particularly self-portraits. The whole purpose of art is to escape oneself or to understand oneself. Self-portraits seem to be ins an insufferable imprisonment. Next slide. I'd say, so he asks his wife, uh, Sutherland's wife, how is it? Churchill says, how is this painting? Because he isn't able to see it. And she says, I'd say it has truth. Churchill says, I am, am I allowed to be a peak? No, sir. Why? I could give you some advice. After all, I know this face better than you do. If you made the neck too thick or the arms too long, I could tell you. But is your image of yourself what people want to see? Certainly. Don't I understand myself better than anyone else? I have lived with myself for 80 years. Sutherland says, I find in general people have very little understanding of who they are. And in order to get through life at all, we have to turn a blind eye to much of ourselves. And you see it is your responsibility to bring all that into the open? Yes. The good things as well as the bad. In a way... Um, we spend a lot of our life actually not seeing ourselves. If you woke up this morning, you walked in your bathroom, you would have seen a mirror there. I don't think you actually saw yourself when you looked in the mirror. You didn't see into yourself. You saw parts of yourself, maybe your hair, or your eyes, 
or you shaved or you put on makeup, whatever it is, but you don't actually see yourself. We spend a lot of our times looking into mirrors and actually not seeing ourselves. And this is where we get to addiction. Addiction, I believe, is a last-ditch attempt to escape our reality of pain, the here and now of pain, shame, and sin by pursuing a perfectly constructed fantasy. It is our attempt to leap towards Revelations 21 after facing the horror of Genesis 3. Yet as we leap, we stumble and fall, fragmented from ourselves, others, and God. Healing takes place when we face it when we face our pain, shame, and sin and reconnect vulnerably with ourselves, others, and God. Addiction is about escape from our reality. Now let me briefly just describe addiction very quickly. Uh, This is a common definition of what we would typically see for addiction. Addiction is an engagement in a compulsive behavior, meaning repetitive, even when faced with negative consequences, which is then reinforced through mood-altering stimuli and the reward circuitry of the brain, primarily through dopamine, in an attempt to either A, alleviate pain, or two, enhance pleasure. But before we talk about addiction and primarily sexual addiction this morning, we have got to ask the question, why in the world is there addiction? Addictions are rampant in our world. whether it's substance use, whether it's sexual addiction, whatever it is, addictions are rampant. Addiction is an attempt to escape reality of pain and enter into a fantasy. How is addiction usually perceived in the church? Let me just phrase that. How we typically think of addiction is that addiction is a destructive behavior and is the result of personal sin And in order to heal from that addiction, we need to repent of our idols, repent of our sin, and follow Jesus. There's a lot of that I agree with. Pretty much all of that I agree with. But there's very important parts that we're missing in this. And and this is what's missing. We have missed... We have missed the deeper emotional needs beneath the addiction. We have not helped the individual resolve the issue of lament. We have not helped the individual resolve the pain that drives the addiction. We have, provided a pres- we have not provided a presence in the midst of the pain, but simply a solution to the problematic behavior. And what I mean by that is typically with addictions, we want people to move forward out of addiction, but we don't want them to take time to... Ac- identify and recognize what is the pain that's driving the addiction. And in order to do that, we have to be present. We're missing two types and two primary ways in which sin impacts us. The church gets one very well, which is this idea of we are sinners, we're born into sin, and therefore we have sin that we need to confess. But these first two, it doesn't get very good. We need more of this. That we're actually bathed in sin. This is the idea that in creation, the created order, the way my body operates, is not the way it's supposed to be. There's deterioration of our bodies, death and disease, spoiled produce, which rots the belly, and spiraling tornadoes, which ravage communities. Thorns and thistles, toil and trepidation. 
Basically, anywhere we look, we can see a remnant of Genesis 3 in the created order, and that includes our created bodies. The next point, we're brutalized by sin, and this is the sin that's done to us by other people. Sexual seduction leaving our bodies, bodies burdened by shame, power used to perpetuate prejudice, poverty, and pervert, voids inside us caused by neglect, and lifelong lacerations caused by abuse and trauma. That we have been brutalized by sin. And then at the end there, of course, our individual sin of denial, of stepping into our addiction over and over again. In order to heal from addiction, though, you cannot just heal one of those. You have to heal all three of those. If this is a sin issue, we need to address each one of those categories. And let me talk to you a little bit about how this plays out in my life. I became very aware in sixth or seventh grade that sixth or seventh grade that my body was betraying me in a very drastic way. Uh, all throughout my life, I feel like I've been um, blessed, physically fit, healthy. My brother taught me how to exercise at a young age, and I had that going for me, but what people didn't know is that I struggle with a condition called hyperhidrosis. And in that condition, I could not sit at school and take an exam because my hands and my feet and my armpits would sweat so bad that they would literally drop sweat. I had to sit in the classroom and go like this, over and over and over again, hoping that my hands would dry enough to take my pencil and actually write on my paper because if they were too wet, the sweat would drip down to the lead and it would create a hole in my paper. I'd go home and I would have to put on gloves, put a fan in front of me in order to do my homework. Um, I cannot tell you how socially isolating that was for me pivotal point in my life that I didn't sin but my body was broken and it wasn't working the way that it was supposed to and that was extremely painful not only that but um, as an adolescent and as a young boy you know I used to do dumpster diving if you know what dumpster diving is you essentially go out and you look for treasures in other people's trash I would do that behind our church with a couple buddies and I remember my first time seen porn. That was the time when I was dumpster diving, looking for joy in my innocence and coming across a porn magazine. My innocence was shattered as a young boy, not because I sinned, but because of the brokenness of creation, that that should not be. I should have never found that magazine. I was brutalized by sin. Those who were in authority in my life, who should have protected me sexually, took me to places and did things with me um, that shattered my innocence as a person. Authority figures who I needed to provide emotional support for me didn't. And I was born of sin, that in my addiction, there were times when I looked at porn for 12 years being addicted to porn, always going back to it and recognizing instead of turning from it, I kept turning back to it, that I have personal sin. My healing came about when I healed from each one of those categories of sin, and I found connection in the midst of those first two predominantly 
We preach the power of this conquering king, yet forget the presence of the suffering servant. We are people of triumph, progress, and success, and we are not people of tears, presence, and lament. We are not. A really good author I like, Sung Chan Ra, says, Lament in the Bible is a liturgical response to the reality and suffering and engages God in the context of pain and trouble. The American church avoids lament. The power of lament is minimized and the underlining nature of suffering that requires lament is lost. Lament is the language of suffering. If we want to heal sexual addiction, we have got to acknowledge the sin of the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of our bodies. We have to acknowledge the sin of being brutalized against us. And then we have to own our own sin as an individual. Let me give you 10 ways, stepping into sexual addiction, let me give you 10 ways in which sexual addiction is unique. We're talking about addictions, but I'm primarily talking about sexual addiction this morning. 10 ways in which it's unique. Sexual addiction is a behavioral addiction focused on sex. So typically we have what's called chemical addictions, which is you ingest a substance into the body, you ingest it or you inject it, and that alters a chemical process in our brain in which releases endorphins, give us a, gives a, us a euphoric effect. Uh, porn and sex addiction is a behavioral addiction, which means I have access to it wherever I go or within seconds because I can pick this up and I can, this is my dealer, and I can get su that substance very, very quickly in my brain and it's very difficult to break substance abuse, or I'm sorry, very difficult to break sexual addiction because it's a behavioral process. Number two, sexual addiction is not about sex. Let me say that again. Sexual addiction is actually not about sex because if it was about sex, people would look at porn and they would masturbate and they'd have an orgasm within one minute of looking at porn. That's not the case. People prolong this period of arousal, of fantasy, of escaping reality for days or weeks. That we can be in a cycle of the addiction for a long period of time. If it was about sex, it would only be about the orgasm, but it's about the escape. Number three, sexual addiction involves an obsessive pursuit of non-intimate sexuality and is manifested in a diverse ways. Robert Weiss, who is a sex addiction therapist, um, now this point is not to be confused with the first point, because even though it's not about sex, it's about pain, we recognize that behaviorally how it's presented is through sexual actions, okay? So if we look at a tree and we look at an orange tree and we have the orange fruit, I recognize that, okay, there's fruit, but there's also the root. The root is pain and escape. The fruit just comes out sexually. It could come out with substances. It could come out with everything else. So this could be compulsive use of porn with or without masturbation. This could be multiple affairs or serial relationships, engagement in prostitution, sensual massages, voyeurism and exhibitionism, and so on. Number four, sexual addiction is more about pain than pleasure. I've talked about that already. That this addiction that we have... Um, this non-intimate addiction is not about pleasure, it's about pain. That was a very foundational point for me in my healing journey. Um, it was with that man right there, <laughs> who was my mentor for five years, 
Steve Tracy. I remember sitting on the phone with him and weeping and just saying, I, I keep going back to this, what is going on? And he said, I wonder if this is more about pain than this is about pleasure. And I just remember the times in which I, I looked at porn and, and I just remember weeping afterwards because I had to come back then to my reality, which was I am aching to have somebody close to me. And until I addressed that part, I could not heal from sexual addiction. Point five. Sexual addiction, the sexual addiction cycle begins and ends with pain. Let me show you the cycle here. So there's typically a trigger or stimuli, and that evokes pain or shame in us. What then happens in the midst of our pain is we move to preoccupation. Preoccupation is the entry into the fantasy. And what I mean by this is we get into this euphoric haze in which now we don't have to be who we are at work. We don't have to be who we are at home. We can be whoever we want to be. And we can be liked and um, drawn in by whoever we want to be. And relationships can be whatever I want them to be. I can look at porn and be with any woman that I possibly want. She can be with me. We enter into this fantasy. We think about it. And people can actually be in this stage for minutes, hours, days, and weeks. Have you ever heard of white knuckling? Okay. White knuckling is essentially someone who is in preoccupation, who's trying to hold it together, but their mind is constantly in the addiction cycle. Okay. Next, we move to ritualization. And what ritualization is, is um, this reduces our ability to, this reduces our ability to say stop to the addiction. And this has a lot to do with the reward circuitry of the brain. I'm not going to get into this a lot. But when we deal with ritual, what we mean is that if you think about taking a sled down a, down a hill, not in Arizona, maybe up in Flag. If you think about taking a sled down a hill that has snow on it and you go over the same place over and over and over and over again. Well, pretty soon you get up to the top of the hill and you're like, I think I want to go that way. So then you get on your tube or your sled and you start going and you're like, trying to go over here, but I'm in this rut and I keep going down this path. The reward circuitry of the brain, what we know is that neurons that get fired a lot wire together and make it a very quick jump to that process. So when we've been looking at porn for a long time or we've been addicted to sex for a long time, we go there very quickly because our brain is now structured to go there very quickly. The next stage is acting out. And this is typically the point when we start, this is what we see, okay? This is when it comes out. This is when someone goes, goes and has an affair. This is when somebody looks at porn. This is when somebody X, Y, or Z. This point right here, this is the last ditch attempt to completely annihilate the feeling of pain. This is that final attempt to jump towards Revelations uh, 21 and say, I think I can reach it. A world without pain and suffering. And yet, what does it do? Always, it drives us back up to pain and shame. Not only back up to pain and shame, you can imagine how much stronger than pain and shame is when you've tried to escape your reality of pain, get thrust back into your reality of pain, and then realize, oh my gosh, that didn't work. And now as Christians, especially in a culture um, which is very ashamed of these behaviors, there's this heightened level of shame that we feel in the midst of that and isolation. The way out of this 
is connection. And it's not connection and acting out. Let me tell you this. If we are catching people at acting out and we are trying to redirect them, you're way gone. It's too late. We have got to catch ourselves and we have to, we have to be with people at this stage of pain and shame. What that means is that as people, we need to get better about sharing our pain and shame with other people. I had to get really, really good at recognizing I feel like I want to go look at porn. And I had to get really good at recognizing what is going on inside of me? What emotional need am I trying to reach? Call up a buddy then. Talk to my wife. And get that emotional need met in a healthy way. It has to be through connection. Point six. Sex addicts do not have deep friendships. Not only do they not have deep friendships, they can't have deep friendships because the people that they share themselves with don't know them because the addict doesn't know themselves. The addict has a constructed idea of who they should be and who they want to be that's not full of pain and shame and insecurity. So when I share that with somebody and when I share that with my spouse, they think they're getting me, but they're not. And I think actually that I'm sharing myself with them, but I'm not. <laughs> that's part of the delusion, that's part of the fantasy. They can't handle rejection. And that's why they go to the addiction. Number seven, sexual addiction is heavily driven by shame. Okay, so Brene Brown, uh, Steve Tracy has some excellent, um, Many in the Soul has done excellent work on this issue of shame, understanding it theologically. Brene Brown uses this quote, though. Shame is the intensely painful feeling of experiencing or believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance or belonging. And what this means is that ultimately we believe that somehow along the point of us being made in God's image, we go along and then we stumble and we fall and we get into sex, we get into porn or whatever it is, and we believe with the shame that somehow we've lost or we do not deserve the image of God any longer. Okay? And that is a lie from Satan. That you cannot have the image of God taken away. The image of God gives us digni dignity as people, worth and value. Every single person here has that. And yet shame comes in and tells us that we don't have that any longer. Uh, Jay Stringer, he's a researcher looking at sex addicts. He found that men were 300% more likely to pursue pornography for each unit of shame. Women were 546% more likely to engage in pornography for every unit of shame. 1 John 1.9 if we confess our sins, beautiful passage, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful passage. Those who have shame cannot confess sin because if they confess sin, it will mean that they have to open up their, they have to show their cracks in their armor and that's too overwhelming because that might confirm the shame, which is you're worthless, you don't have value, and you're a failure. What is Satan's best attempt to keep us from confession of sin? It's shame. It's shame because he knows that if he can keep us in shame, we will be so defensive because we're so afraid that we're not going to be enough that we won't confess because confessing means that we are, are broken and that we need somebody. Number eight, 
A pornified culture nourishes sexual addiction and distorts healthy forms of sexuality. Pornography globally is a $97 billion, $97 billion industry. 10 to 12 billion of that comes from the U.S. There is a, uh, there's a porn hub, that's what it's called, porn hub. Uh, there's Pornhub, and it's the largest porn website in the entire world. It's been ranked at, I think, somewhere either 30 to, um, 30 to 40, somewhere in there, as the most popular website in the entire world, okay? This is like under Amazon and Google and Facebook and all of these things. Every year, they put out stats, Okay. Now remember, Pornhub is one website, although it's the largest porn website, it's one website out of millions of websites that distribute porn. In 2017, they, have an, they had an average of 81 million daily visits. There were 400 million videos uploaded in 2017. That's 63 years of porn were uploaded for this one website. The top five search terms were lesbian, hentai, which is Japanese porn, a very graphic form of Japanese porn, MILF, and I'm not going to explain what that is, <laughs> stepmom and stepsister. Last year in 2016, the highest ranked term was cartoon. That we have come so far from an understanding of healthy sexuality. And yet I think this so reveals our desire to be nurtured, our desire to have connection. All of those terms are familial terms. They're mother-like terms. They're sister-like terms. We are attempting to meet an emotional need by reaching out for porn and sexual addiction, and it reveals it. Number nine. Partners and spouses of sex addicts experience betrayal trauma. This is important, okay? So we used to think of someone comes into treatment or therapy with sexual addiction, and their partner, whether it's a woman or a man, is experiencing codependence or they're, they're bipolar. Um, meaning, codependence is a nice way of saying this person can't live on them by themselves. They have to be so linked with another person that they lose the sense of what they feel and what they think and it's wrapped up in the other person. But what we know now is that this is not codependence for the partner. This is trauma. That when your spouse has spent 10 years or 5 years or 1 year um, looking at porn or sleeping around or having an affair and you don't know it and then you find out about it, it disrupts your entire world. It's like standing on the edge of a rug and someone just yanks it out from underneath you. That is traumatic. These, these women and these men have the same symptoms of PTSD. Hypervigilance, anxiety and depression, inability to sleep and nightmares, avoid thinking about or discussing the betrayal, use of alcohol, drugs, food, spending to escape the pain. Partners of sex addicts do not need to be blamed for the addiction of their partner. And I will say that again. Do not blame the partner of the sex addict because it is not their fault. 
everybody has responsibility in their life. And what that means is that the partner of sex addicts, there is this opportunity to kind of have that straight spine, to set healthy boundaries, to be able to make known some guidelines, but it is not their fault. I hear all the time in therapy working with sex addicts that the reason why I sleep around is because my wife won't give me sex. It's not that she's not giving you sex. It's because you don't know what to do with that, without that. That you think that life without sex is impossible and you actually don't know what to do with that pain. Instead of re-engaging with your spouse about what's going on, you disconnect. Number 10, sexually addicted behaviors reveal deep emotional needs. This is important, especially in that fantasy and ritual stage. The type of acting out reveals very deep emotional needs within people. So for porn, um, I don't feel safe in relationships. And I don't believe that I could be fully loved. So real relationships are too vulnerable, so I look at porn. Voyeurism, observing other people from a distance, kind of that peeping Tom. I'm deeply afraid to be seen by other people. Exhibitionism, exposing yourself in front of other people. I want to deeply, deeply be seen by people. And this is the only way I know how to go about getting it. I'm not saying that there aren't other mental issues underneath this and behavioral health issues and sin issues. I'm just trying to build our awareness to those first two primary categories of sin, which is the brokenness of the world and those things done to us. Addiction is an attempt to alleviate that pain and escape to a fantasy. Yes, we need to confess sin. That's there. But we also need to recognize our pain. Let me give you... Um, Five ways that we can heal from sexual addiction. The first is that we need to repent of, the, of those, um, we need to repent to those people whose worlds we have turned upside down. And I'm not just talking about our spouse. I'm talking about our children. I'm talking about our community, our small group, and our best friends. That that would be a betrayal to a friendship and a spouse and a community to realize who they've shared life with for 10 years is not actually that person because you've projected a false self of who you are. We need to repent of our sins um, and instead of simply, and this, is, this is what I mean by this, I wish that I would have spent a lot more time repenting for how I dealt with my pain than repenting for looking at porn. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to spend a lot more time repenting about how we deal with pain than looking at porn. Because that's the root, that's the start. That we don't know how to deal with pain and therefore we reach out into self-destructive ways. We don't only need to repent from the behavior, we need to pursue connection. Those are two different actions. Repentance is not just a confession, it is an action. And the action there is not just to tighten up a white knuckle. The action is repent of my sin and turn to connection. We need to break through denial at this stage. So denial, um, Patrick Carnes, who's a sex addict expert, he will say that the first stage that addicts need to get to is 
passing through or breaking through denial. And I, this is how this comes out in my office. I'll be meeting with a guy or a girl, and they will talk about how they're having an affair or looking at porn. Um, and they don't want to tell their spouse because they, and they'll say this, I don't want to tell my spouse because I'm afraid to hurt them. And in that moment, I look at them and I say, and yet you're already hurting them. They don't need to know for you to hurt your spouse. That's denial. Denial is the belief that I can keep doing these behaviors and somehow it can't impact anybody else. I can't make people get there. The Holy Spirit can. But as a therapist, I can't make people get there. But I can invite them into that process of seeing clearly what's going on and coming back into reality and staying out of their fantasy. Uh, sex addicts not only need to repent, they need to learn how to set healthy boundaries. Let's be honest. Um, people who are addicted to sex, I had to learn not only to repent, I had to set up things in my life. There was a moment in my life where I realized I am deeply disconnected from men and that was driving my pain. Emotionally disconnected. Um, what I did from this church is I went, I remember the day, I went to a couple of my buddies and I said, hey, I'm struggling. I would love to just meet together once a week with you three um, because I'm really struggling with porn and I need um, accountability. And more so than that, I just need connection. Can we just meet together and not talk about sports, not talk about games and all that stuff. Can we just go deep with one another? I met with those guys for three years and then we added in some more guys in that space. And I'll tell you this, I will always meet with guys for the rest of my life because I realize that scar and that wound probably won't go away. But I need to be aware of it and I need to realize that's the wound that's driving my, my pain. Number two, lament our wounds and our scars. Um, what this looks like is in my counseling office, um, there are two chairs and it's always weird when I have clients come in and they sit in my chair and I'm like, uh, usually they're the first time there, they're like sitting in my chair and I'm like, I guess I'll sit on the couch and you can counsel me. And, um, but typically I sit in the chair and they sit in the couch. It's a real comfy couch. I've um, taken a nap in it. Um, a real comfy couch and I have them sit down and I say, do you realize that sitting on this couch means that you are in despair and you're hoping at the exact same time? What I mean by that is you wouldn't be on this couch if you weren't in the crisis, if you weren't in despair, and you would not be in this room if you didn't believe that there was hope. Okay? This becomes especially important when we deal with suicidal clients that I've learned. Um, but it becomes very important also when we deal with addictions that we have to face and lament our wounds and our scars. And let me say this about scars. When Jesus rose from the dead, he had scars. And I've had heard too much bad theology, um, I remember meeting with a prominent religious leader in the valley and him telling me, my desire for you is that you never feel pain in that area again. And I think that's possible. And I walked out of there feeling like, that's a complete lie. <laughs> I will always have the scars that I have. But what I've realized is those scars are an opportunity to walk to Jesus and, and have him walk to me and say, hey, 
Thank you for having scars with me and entering into the pain. Our deepest wounds are an opportunity to be intimate with others and intimate with Jesus. They're not something we need to heal. They're something we need to enter into. Job 42, um, this is an interesting passage because this is after Job restored, God restored all of Job's fortunes, which is beautiful. He restored everything. And yet at the end, it said his friends showed up for him and they showed him sympathy and comfort from all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Hold on a second. God restored everything. Job lost his family. He lost all of his children. He lost all of his economic resources. That is not something that you stop grieving over. That is not something you get over. Even though you might get other things twice as much, that Job still needed people to enter into his pain. We have got to learn how to lament. Number three, courageously live in a reality while facing ourselves and our stories. Let me read a quote by Augustine. This is his book called Confessions. It's essentially kind of his dialogue. I'm a strong believer that Augustine, to a large degree, was a sex addict in a lot of ways, if you read Confessions. It's this very raw kind of expression of his pain and his struggle sexually. He says, I intend to remind myself of my past foulness and carnal corruptions. So they used to talk like that, like that's real intense. But his past foulness and carnal corruptions, okay, so he's talking about his past sin. Not because I love them, but so that I may love you, my God. It is from love of your love that I make the act of recollection. The recalling of my wicked ways is bitter in my memory, as it always will be. But I do it so that you may be sweet to me, a sweetness touched by no deception, a sweetness serene and content. You gather me together from the state of disintegration. I think this is beautiful from what we've talked about. You've gathered me together from a state of disintegration in which I have been fruitfully divided. I turn from unity in you to be lost in multiplicity. Okay, so what he's saying there is, I fractured myself. And when I came back into relationship with Christ, I had this unity, but I had to recall my past foulness, my past sin, not because I like to, but because I get to enter into the sweetness of Jesus. That's beautiful. We have to do that. Number four. Live connected lives of relational vulnerability. I'll tell you this right now. We cannot heal from sexual addiction unless we know how to connect deeply. Sexual addiction is identified as an attachment disorder most of the time. It's identified as an intimacy problem. It's an inability to connect authentically and intimately with another, and therefore I have to go to these other relationships to somehow try to connect. I'm trying to connect, but I can't. God knows connection. He wove this into all of Scripture. Genesis 3, uh, Genesis 2. It is not good that man is alone. Genesis 1 and 2. John 17, the high priestly prayer, when Jesus is praying for his disciples, he prays for unity, that they might have the same love that he has with the Father. And in, first, and in Corinthians 13, 12, it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but, when, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall be fully known. I shall be known fully as I am fully known. That in heaven, there is this knowing that happens that we are fully known, which is beautiful, which is what actually Adam and Eve had before the fall. And that's gonna be restored. Number five, 
we need to pursue God's beautiful gift of sex. C.S. Lewis said this, the better stuff a creature is made of, the cleverer and stronger and freer it is, then the better it will be if it goes right, but also the worse it will be if it goes wrong. What this means is that the reason why sex has become so twisted and so vile um, is because it's that beautiful. Let me explain this. If something is only this good, if it flips over, it can only be this bad. If something is this beautiful and Satan twists it and torments it and distorts it, where does it go? Way over there. Sex is beautiful. Sex is this beautiful gift. Our bodies are this beautiful gift given to us by God. And we need to come back into a healthy form of intimacy with our bodies and with proper use of sex. We need to understand that God owns the instruction manual on our bodies. He owns the instruction manual on sex, which means if I buy a Ferrari which I wish I could, but I can't. If I bought a Ferrari and I decided what I want to do, I know the instruction manual says to put gas in here, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to pour sand in here because it's what I want to do and it's what I think would be best for this car. I might have an idea of how I want that car to run and I might try the way that I do it, but it's going to break down. Unless you put into the car what is meant to be in there, it will not run with the efficiency that it was meant to run on and in the same way with our bodies, and in the same way with sex. If we try to create a sexuality that's around what we want without understanding God's instruction manual for it, it will break down and it will fail. I talked about the crown. Um, I'm going to come back to it here at the end. There is this scene. So uh, go and take that off real quick. So there's this scene at the end then when he's getting his final portrait drawn. Churchill is sitting there. It's just him and Sutherland, and Sutherland is drawing um, his portrait. Now, take note here. Churchill, throughout this episode, has been seen painting portraits of this pond that he's been sitting at multiple times. He's at this pond, and he's painting this pond. And this is where the scene picks up. Churchill asks, um, will I like my picture? Sutherland says, that may be too much to ask for, but I take to heart from the fact that your own work is so honest and revealing. Which work are you referring to? My self-portraits? Actually, I was thinking of the goldfish pond here at Cartwell. What about it? It's just a pond. It's very much more than a pond as born out of the fact that you have returned to it again and again, more than 20 times. It eludes me, technically. Or perhaps you elude yourself, sir. And in that sense, it is more revealing than any self-portrait. Nonsense, it's just watery. It's just water, the trickery of the light. I just think that all of our work is unintentionally revealing. And I found it especially so with your pond. In that work, beneath the tranquility and light, plays on the surface, beneath the elegance, I saw honesty and pain, terrible pain. Beneath the muted colors, the framing immediately suggests to me there was something in that water that you wanted us to see. That there in the water, deep below, there was a great despair, hiding like a leviathan, an ocean-dwelling monster. As they go in this narrative, Churchill begins to talk about his two-year-old daughter who passed away when he was away. And he comes home, and his wife is weeping. 
and shortly after that, he bought the pond. He had no idea that every time he went out to the pond to draw this beautiful description of water, that it was about this deep pain until someone drew that out to him. Let me speak to those very briefly who find themselves in sexual addiction. Can you sense the terrible pain beneath all of it? What are you trying to tell us? And what do you want us to see? Are you willing to return back to reality? Or are you going to continue to live in your fantasy? Will you face your shame and your pain with us and have connection and with Jesus? Now let me speak to all of us because this is relevant for all of us. I pray that we would be a people of repentance and lament. I pray that we would be a people who live courageously into our reality and face ourselves and our stories. I pray that we would be a people who find both strength in this conquering king who can take us out of our addiction, who has overcome sin, and the suffering servant who sits with us in our sin that has been done to us. Let us be a people who look beyond the addiction and see the pain. And let us be a people who confess that all, at times, all of us want to escape. That's the reality. We just find more appropriate ways to do it. That we are all crying out for shalom, a world without pain, tears, and death, a world full of joy, peace, and connection. And let me close with this quote from Augustine. The single desire that dominated my search for delight was simply to love and to be loved. Thank you.